Well, good morning, everyone. This chilly afternoon, this chilly afternoon, it is uh, good to see you all. We commend you for making it out in this, in this type of weather. Uh, we are beginning a new series of messages today, and there's going to be something, a new feature uh, for this series. Uh, we're going to invite your questions. Uh, you'll see a text number up on the wall to my right that will be there throughout the message. Uh, and if you have a question based in the message, you can just send it to that text and it will get relayed to Andy. And at the end of the message, uh, we're going to take a few minutes to try to answer some of the questions that you may have. If there are no questions, uh, well, you get out early today. So uh, it, is, it is up to you what you do, do with that. Let's pray. Father, we have just heard words that uh, might confuse us, might humble us, might scare us, might sober us. We need your help to understand these words and all that this mysterious book might teach us. So come and be with us please, living God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm a guy that does not like riddles. When somebody comes to me and says, hey, Tim, let's figure this out, I, I, I walk away as quick as I can. Don't like the kinds of things where somebody tries to, you know, give me brain freeze so that my eyes just start glazing over and Yet there are those people, and there may be some of this type among us here, who, who just thrive on those things and, and love to stymie and baffle others. There, there was an ancient riddle maker. His name was Zeno. Zeno was one of those old Greek brainiac guys who apparently liked to sit around creating riddles that would fry other people's brains. And the one particular riddle that uh, has interested me through the years is, is called Zeno's Paradox. Basically, what Zeno argued went like this. Follow closely. If I want to get from point A to point B, before I can get all the way to point B, I have to get half of the way to point B. Makes sense, right? So now I'm at, what, point A, I forget that. We're just, we're halfway there, all right? <laughs> but before I can get from the halfway point all the way to point B, I have to go half of the way. And then before I can get all the way to B from that point, I have to go half of the way. And since there's always another half of the way there, I never get to point B. Figure that one out. So in other words, according to Zeno, you never actually get where you want to be, and you're not even sure you are where you think you are. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. The reality is that we human beings long for meaning. 
We, we long for significance. We, we long to matter. We want our lives and the things that happen in our lives to have purpose. But all too often, we feel like we're stuck somewhere in the middle of Zeno's paradox. That we never actually quite arrive where we want to get. We never actually get there. We're always pursuing. There's always further to go, further to go, further to go, until we get that feeling of lasting fullness, of meaningfulness, of significance. We're on this quest, and we never seem to reach the end. Now, for some people, this is profoundly troubling. For some people, it leads to despair. Some, perhaps in this room, would, if you heard Shakespeare's words, you would agree. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. When you hear those words, say, yeah, amen, that's been my life. Or, or maybe you're more in tune with the dread pirate Roberts. When the man in black says, life is pain, your highness, anyone who says differently is selling something. It doesn't mean that everybody's walking around in a deep, dark funk. It doesn't mean that everybody is contemplating suicide, although the numbers are up. And although we live in a culture where I doubt there's ever been anywhere in any time in history where the average person is drinking more booze and shooting more drugs and popping more pills and watching more mind-numbing entertainment and, and even senselessly taking and cheapening human life than in our culture today. Yeah. Even though we have so much, yet there seems to be a cloud of, of despair, a cloud of meaninglessness that hovers over us. There are many who are in a deep, dark funk, but then there are many others who it's not really that way, and maybe you're not in that deep, dark funk, but maybe you're, you have something more of a kind of quiet despair. You remember the words of Henry David Thoreau, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to their grave with the song still in them. The mass of men, the majority of human beings, live lives of quiet desperation. It's not a raging despair. It's not a fist-raising defiance. It's not a suicidal depression. But it's just a quiet desperation, a a deep-down sense of unsettledness, of, of longing. They don't even know what for, but longing. And they end up dying Thoreau says, with the song still in them, never having sung the song of fulfillment, of dignity, of meaning, of significance that's in their souls, and so the song dies with them. Maybe you're there. Quiet desperation. Just kind of journeying through life. One day leads into another and never ever seems to really get anywhere or mean anything, but you plod on, you plod on, and the song never gets sung. 
not easy to sing the song, though, is it? Uh, especially as you look in this world. If you're actively engaged in the world, if your mind is thinking and your heart is feeling, your heart is pumping, and you look at the world and watch the world and see what's happening, it's not easy. There are many days in which it is very hard to sing the song. If you have a caring engagement with the real world, it will lead to a hoped-for improvement of the real world, right? You engage and you want to improve the world. You want it to get better. But the more you have a hoped-for improvement of the real world, there is a deep disappointment with the real world because the world never seems to get much better. And then that deep disappointment leads to growing discouragement with the real world and then a deepening detachment from the real world and then a growing fierce embitterment against the real world that eventually leads to a profound sense of bereavement, a sense of loss, death, not just death to others, but death to joy, death to hope death to meaning. The more you see, the more you sense, the more you're aware, the more you care, the more you hurt. Years ago, I read about a pediatric oncologist, a doctor caring for children with cancer. And he was found one day dead on the sidewalk, having thrown himself from a high window. He left a note, and the note read simply, it hurts too much to care. It hurts too much not to care. And he despaired and took his own life. If you're one of those who has tried to be engaged with your world and you're finding it almost too much to bear, if you're one who tries to care and is finding caring hurts too much, if you're one who actually talks to other people and hears their stories only to realize how much sorrow and sadness they have experienced, if you're one who is tracking events and and circumstances and crises in this messed up planet and you are beginning to feel yourself sink, The book of Ecclesiastes is for you. This is a strange book here. You already heard 18 verses of it read. It's it's mysterious. It's it's different than any other book in the Bible. And uh, without some clue as to what it's about and where it's going, uh, it can leave your head spinning. It, it, It actually might depress you just reading the book. But we're going to take some time because, friends, I would, I would maintain that the book of Ecclesiastes gives us the one and the only perspective that can maintain your sanity and give you meaning for life. The one and the only perspective that can maintain your sanity and give you meaning for Life. I should, I should give you a little background. Uh, how did I get introduced personally to Ecclesiastes? It was 1986. I was a young pastor, been a pastor at that point for uh, three years, 
And we went through a season of our life, I was, what, 27 or so at the time, uh, went through a season of our life in ministry where in the space of two years, 13 people, this very small church, 13 people died. Pretty much every other month, I was getting another phone call. Now, among those was a 45-year-old who died by accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. Among them was a 32-year-old who died of cancer, a 31, a 27, and a 22-year-old who died of a suicide, and a 14-year-old who died of leukemia. Do you know how many times I was asked the question, why? You want to know how many times I asked the question, why? And I had to say to others and say to myself, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get it. I can't make any sense out of it. The why question became dominant in my life. And I wrestled with it. And I searched for answers. Until the Lord led me to the book of Ecclesiastes where I learned that I didn't need the answers to the why questions. That there is actually a perspective on life that you can have. There is a vantage point that you can have from which you can see everything you need to see, know everything you need to know, and find meaning and purpose and keep your sanity in the midst of it all. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. So let's, let's get to it. All right, Three simple points this morning, headings. The subject author's profile, the author's point, and the author's process. First of all, the subject or author's profile. We're not exactly sure who wrote Ecclesiastes. Quite possibly, almost certainly, Solomon. But it could have been somebody who was writing about Solomon. Somebody who lived after him or was even contemporary with him and wrote about Solomon and Solomon's experience. And if you were to take a look at Solomon's Facebook page and were to just track his profile, you'd find some very interesting facts. Number one, his family line, it says in verse one, he was the son of David. So he was a man born in a palace, King David, born in a palace, a child of privilege, a man with great privilege. Secondly, His occupation, he was king, it says, in Jerusalem. He was a ruler of a mighty empire, so he was a man with a lot of power. His resume and his accomplishments. Well, if you read the account of Solomon's life in earlier parts of Scripture, he was an architect, he was an engineer, he was an educator, he was an agriculturalist. He was a creative genius. Huge accomplishment. What about his education? He was, by a special outpouring of God, the wisest man to ever live. The man was brilliant and wise to go with it. His economic state? Filthy rich. Sickeningly rich. They they estimate that he was worth somewhere around $2.1 trillion dollars in modern value. Astonishing wealth. He had lots of money. His relationship status. That gets a little complicated. 300 wives, 
700 mistresses. Uh, if he saw a woman, he took her. Basically it. Relationships, lots of them. Pleasure, lots of it. But, despite all of those things, he had, notice his emotional state, he was in a state of depression. Meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities, verse 2. The word vanity means vapor, mist, gone. Meaningless, meaningless, vain, vain, vapor, vapor. All is vapor. All is but a breath. It's just this, this little wisp of nothingness and futility. Later on, he would say that it would have been better had he never been born. And then he would say, I wish I were dead. So here is a man who has everything and is in utter despair. He is suicidally unhappy. Now, we get a clue as to why that happened when we notice one thing further about his profile, and that is that his worldview, his view of life, was earthbound. It was earthbound. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving, a chasing after the wind. Solomon is earthbound in his perspective. At this point in his life, at this juncture in his life, he is viewing all of life under the sun. He is not seeing above the sun. He is not taking God into perspective. From what we know about Solomon, he's, a, he's one of the most tragic figures in the entire Bible. A man who had more privilege than just about everyone, but ended up abandoning God. Just abandoning God. And with that, abandoning his above-the-sun perspective. And with that, abandoning all meaning. He was a man who, though he had it all, lived and felt as if he had nothing. Because he was earthbound. In today's language, we would say he was a secularist. Familiar with that term. A, a secularist is someone who lives life as if God does not exist. He just lives life as if this world is all that is. And at this point in Solomon's life, he is a functional secularist. He, he is living as if God does not exist. This book was written about a man who had stopped looking above the sun. The story you're about to hear from this book is true. It's about a real man who lived in real space and real time who forgot God and in forgetting God lost everything. And so 
it is important for us to listen to him. He's got something to say. He's got something to say out of real life experience. And what does he have to say? What's the author's point? His point is this. And this is the summary of our series. Even if, even if in the quest for significance, we could try everything under heaven that there is to try, we would never find our meaning here. For our maker is our meaning. Even if, in the quest for significance, we could try everything under heaven that there is to try, we would never find our meaning here. For our maker is our meaning. Now, if you're a skeptic here this morning, please don't, don't, don't jump ship yet, all right? Don't, don't, don't check your brain out at this point and say, okay, it's just a bunch of religious stuff, what I expect in the church. No, I, what I'm going to want you to see as we proceed through these weeks is that this was not just some kind of crazy leap of faith that Solomon is expressing here. This is not just some kind of grandiose claim by a religion. No, this was a result, this was a conclusion drawn from trial and error. This was a conclusion drawn by a man who set his heart and mind to find out the meaning of life with God, not in the picture. And he gives reasons why it's meaningless to be a secularist. Secularism, folks, the belief that God is not there and that this is all there is, secularism is suicide. Let me just put it blunt. Secularism is suicide. It's, it's death to hope. It's death to joy. It's death to meaning. It's death to everything that's of any value. Carl Sagan who uh, put together the PBS series Cosmos. Uh, you may remember he starts that series with this very religious-sounding statement. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. He actually borrows the cadence of a biblical statement about God. And inserts the word cosmos. And he's saying, there is no God. The cosmos is all there is. The universe is all there is. Friends, if you swallow that pill, um, it is death. You swallow that pill, which is, we're going to see, not a rational pill, but it is a leap of faith. If you swallow that pill, Everything that matters will die in your soul. That, that is what Ecclesiastes is about. It's this search for, this longing for, this chase of something that matters, but God isn't in the picture, so something's got to work here. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Let's go through the author's process. You see, this wasn't, as I said, just a leap of faith by Solomon. This wasn't just Solomon just making this statement. No, Solomon tried all there is to try. 
and at the end of the day found that there was nothing of any meaning under the sun. Remember, Solomon was filthy rich. Remember, Solomon had all the women he wanted. Remember, Solomon was wise and knowledgeable. He knew it. He had everything. He tried it all. Look at, look at the language. Look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 1. I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. You see, Solomon is thinking here. This, this is kind of like a research project. He says, I want to discover meaning. So he applied his heart to it. He searched it. He tried things. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But down in verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is not just throwing out statements here. He's saying, I tried it. I've tried it. If you're here this morning, say, well, if only I could have this, then I would be happy. Solomon says, I had that and I wasn't happy. If you say, but that this would do the trick. This would give me meaning. This would give me fulfillment. Solomon says, I tried that. It doesn't work. But you say, you don't understand. I'm wired this way. I need this. This will make me happy. Solomon says, I tried that. It doesn't work. See, Ecclesiastes, in a very real sense, is, is the journal of a man on a scientific pursuit of meaning. And he does the trial and error thing. He said, let me try pleasure. Eh, doesn't work. Let me... Let me, let me try knowledge. Ah, that doesn't work. Let me, let me try philosophy. No, that doesn't work. Let me try politics. No, that doesn't work. Uh, let me try wealth. No, let me, let me try power. No, tries it all. Doesn't work. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And he gives us, he does us the service of actually giving the reasons why these things don't work. Not just like he said, oh, pleasure isn't going to satisfy. He says, no, this is why. It's why it can't satisfy. And at the end of the day, what we're going to see in this series is this. That there is within the human heart... an awareness, a sensitivity to, a consciousness of the fact that there is something more. Something beyond. Something above. That nothing here satisfies. There, there is in each one of our hearts a sense of the eternal, the transcendent, the glorious. See, one of the tragic things about secularism and the prevailing philosophies of our day is that they are reducing human beings to just accidental pieces of dust that exist for a little while and then poof, are gone. 
God says to us, no. You've been made in the image of God, and having been made in the image of God, God has planted within you a seed of and a sense of the eternal, the immortal, the transcendent. And nothing mortal and material and temporary can ever, ever quench your thirst. Nothing can. Don't take my word for it. Come back in these coming weeks and listen to Solomon teach us. Because he's going to give us not only these claims, but the reason for them. And at the end of the day, we will find out that there is meaning after all. But you have to look above the sun to find it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you give to us as a, a group of friends and as a church family and as new friends that may be here this morning, you will give to us an unusual openness of mind, a willingness to think and reason out these questions and issues that are of ultimate importance. I pray that you will meet us these weeks uh, and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.